Elise and I are very excited about having a baby girl. Uh, she is due December 26th, and one of the reasons we're so excited is because we're not going to have to clean up pee off of the ground and off of the walls anymore. Because here's what's happening. Our boys, we have two boys, and our boys, what's happening, Cruz, our oldest, he's waking up in the middle of the night and he's going to the bathroom. The first time we heard it, we were so excited, like we're so proud of him. He's flushing the toilet. He's not coming in our room. He's just going right back to bed. Oh, this is so great. But then the bathroom started smelling like pee. And we're like, what is going on? So I heard him get up and I'm like, let me go see what's going on. So I go, here's what's happening. He's half asleep still, and he's walking to the bathroom, and his eyes are half closed, and he's not looking at what he's doing. Everything's going everywhere. And Kale, our littlest, is barely tall enough to reach the, the toilet, so he's just going on the ground all over the place. We have a little baby girl. This isn't going to happen anymore. At least I think it's not going to happen. I don't know. I don't know yet. Um, but here's what will one day I know will happen. There's going to come a day where they're not so reliant on us anymore. Maybe they've moved out of the house at this point. And at that point... We're going to miss the days when they're peeing all over the ground. We're going to, we're, we would say, oh, if we could just have those days back, even when they're peeing on the ground, we'll clean up pee forever. If we could have them at that age, again, so some of you might not say that. Maybe we're going to say that, maybe we're not. But here's my point. The absence of them being at that age causes our hearts to grow fond of them at that age. And when Elisa and I first started dating, I lived in Gainesville, she lived here. So we had a long distance relationship. So we saw each other once every two or three weeks. And it was always so exciting because we've got a long distance relationship because absence caused the heart to grow fonder. And today what we're going to see is that our tendency is to run from God. And we will run and we will run and we will run. And then at some point God opens up the gates to let us go. But he does it so that we will miss him, so that we will come back, so that absence has caused our heart to grow fond of him. He separates himself from us in a way so that we will long to be back with him. And that's what we're talking about today. We're in John 12. By the way, we are almost done with our series called Light. Next week is the last week, and then we're going to start a new series called Afterglow. I'm really sad to stop the series, but I'm really excited about the series that's to come. So we're John, today we're John 12. We're going to read verses 23, and then we're going to jump to 27 through 43. So here we go. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come into this hour, come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd stood there and heard it and said that it had thundered. Others said that an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? Jesus answered them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you still have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light, 
that you may become sons of light. Then Jesus had said these, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he, had not, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us? And who has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not, not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. There's a lot of different ways that the Bible will talk about sin. And it will talk about also what the results of sin are. Today, here's how I want you to think of sin. Sin is running from God. And the result is separation from God. And that makes sense. If you run from God, you're going to be separated from him. And today we're looking at probably the hardest verses we have looked at since we launched in January. We've got some very difficult verses to understand, and so I want to help you make sense of them. And, the, and this, is, this is the part that's hard to understand. We, we want to, what is going on here with God? It says that he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they won't come to him. And you were like, What? Like, what is going on here? Why would God do that? Does that mean that God is causing people not to believe in him? And the answer is no. We know in James, it says that God does not tempt, and temptation is what gives birth to sin. And then the Bible also says sin is unbelief. That's another way that the Bible describes sin is unbelief. So that means that God does not cause someone to not believe in him. So what, how do we make sense of this? Well, what are the great things about the Bible? One of the beautiful things about what the Bible does is it's constantly explaining itself. And what you have in the New Testament are letters to churches. They're called epistles. And these letters to churches, what those letters are doing is they're serving as commentaries. They're serving as explanations to who Jesus is, what he did, and what he said. So we have the Gospels, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the epistles, the letters to the churches are explaining all of what the Gospels were saying. And what we find in the letter to the Roman church, Paul says he takes three chapters to just explain these few verses that we're looking at here. Three whole chapters to explain these few verses. And at the last, the, at the end of that last chapter, verse 11, he says something that I think basically summarizes all those chapters and what's being said here. And here's what he says. God has consigned all to disobedience so that he might have mercy on all. Now this word consigned, it means to give over to. It's like a hardening. It's like God is giving somebody over to disobedience. He's giving everybody over to disobedience so that he might offer mercy to all. allowing us to run so that we'll come back to him and he'll shower us with mercy. There's a, it's still hard to understand what's going on here, but there's a story that Jesus tells that I think explains it perfectly. It's a story called the, the, the parable of the prodigal son. And here's how the story goes. There's this rich father. This guy's got a lot of money. 
and he's got two sons. And the younger son does something that is incredibly offensive to his father. I mean, one of the worst things that you can say to your father, he says it, and here's what he says. Father, give me my share of the inheritance now. Give me the money that is coming to me now. And what he's essentially saying is, I care nothing about you. I wish you would just go ahead and die already so that I can get the money that is coming to me. And this is incredibly offensive. One of the worst things a son could say to their father. And that's what he says. And the son wants nothing to do with the father. He doesn't care about the father, but the father loves the son and wants the son to want him. And what the father could do is he could say to his son, you want your inheritance now? No. And what that in a sense would do, that would have forced the son to stay with the father, to stay in his presence. But the father knows that if he makes him stay, that that son is never going to love him, never going to want him, never going to understand the mercy that he has to offer him. And so what the father says is, okay, I want you to want me. I'm going to give you your share of the inheritance now. What has the father just done? See, the son was running. He wants to run. He's running in his heart. He's blind to the father's love and he's running away from him, but he can't get out of the gate because he needs his inheritance. So what the father does is he says, okay. In a sense, now what has happened is the son has become blind to the father. He can't see him anymore because the father opened up the gates. So the son takes off with his inheritance. He can't see the father anymore. And outside of the father's care, he squanders everything. He's got all of this money now, and he wastes it on prostitutes and on reckless living. Everything falls apart. And then he's, he gets so bad to the point to where he's eating the food that is for pigs. And then he says to himself, wow, this is horrible. Even my father's servants are living better than I am. I'm going to go back to my father. And look at what he's doing. He's still using his father. He still wants what the father can offer him. He still doesn't love his father. And so he goes back to his father. And as he's coming back, the father sees him in his distance coming. And so this father takes off running, which is not something that Middle Eastern patriarchs do, but he takes off running. And it's a very shameful thing. He's got to hike up his robe, which is a very shameful thing for Middle Eastern patriarchs to show their legs, but he does it because he wants to get to his son. And he gets there and he wraps his arms around him and he puts a robe around him and a ring on his finger, which is basically saying to him, you're back in the family. You're fully restored. You are back in. And he noticed the son wanted nothing to do with the father still, just was using the father. But then when the son sees the mercy of the father, it's then in the story that he loves his father, that he wants him, and he understands that he is a merciful father. He becomes overwhelmed by all of this. His eyes were still closed to the father's love until He's showered with his mercy and then his eyes are opened up and he can actually see his father. His eyes have been opened. Absence from the father's presence caused his heart to be ripe and ready to see the mercy that his father had to offer him. And what we see in our text is that same thing is true for the Jewish people. The Jewish people at this time are running from God. 
The Jewish leaders are running from God. They're masking it, but they are running from God. And we see a long history of God's people continuing to run from him and run from him and run from him. And God's still holding them together. And then finally God says, okay, have what you want. I'll open the gates. And the gates get opened up and God's people run from him. And then they cry out again for mercy and the relationship is restored. God opened up the gates, blinded them so that they would come back to him. And that's what was needed for God to show mercy. In fact, had the Jewish people not done this, then Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, God the Son, never would have died for, uh, for the world, for us, and for them, had they not had the gates opened up so that they could run from God. God has given them over, given all over to running from him so that he might offer mercy to all. Now, what does that mean for you? Well, every single one of us, we are all experiencing some type of separation from God. I mean, this world is not the way it's supposed to be. Sin is coming to the world. This is what the Bible says. So God has separated from us because of sin. And so none of us are walking with God the way that we are meant to. God promises that one day he will be with us fully, relationship completely restored. We're going to be in his arms for eternity, but we're not right now. We're separated from him. And there are varying degrees of this separation. So, so I'm going to talk about three different types of separation, three different types of people. You guys can figure out which one you think you might be. So the first is that God has fully hardened your heart to him and stitched your eyes to him. You're blind to him. You wanted those gates to be opened up and you wanted it and wanted it. And finally he said, okay, and he opens up the gates. And now you can't see him at all. Why is he doing this? He's giving you the freedom so that now you can actually want him. So it becomes your choice to want him. So he opens it up so that you can come back and see the mercy that he is offering you. And for some of you guys, it's time to turn back and come to him. So how do you know if this is you? What does this feel like? Well, it feels like you don't trust God. It feels like you're not really sure if you should, you might want to something that God can give you, but you don't want God. You just want what he can give you. Or maybe, maybe it's that you think he doesn't care about you. Or maybe you just don't believe in him. But there's still something inside of you that says, there's something wrong with this world. You have these desires inside of you where you want a greater world, desires that nothing in this world is satisfying, and that's God's way of calling out to you so that you will come back to him and see that he's a merciful God. He lets you go so that you can see that there's nothing like him. You know, Solomon does this. Solomon says, I've tried everything under the sun. Nothing has satisfied me. So then he comes back to God. So that's the first type. The second type of person is that you're a Christian. You believe, but there's a separation that's happening because there's some type of sin in your life that you keep running to, you keep wanting. And God is kind of holding you back from it fully, but you keep running it and you keep wanting it and wanting it and wanting it. Finally, God opens up the gates for you to run to that sin and it's taking over your life. God has opened, listen, God has opened up the gates so that he can 
shower you with mercy. And once you are showered with that mercy, you're going to love him and you're going to see the depths of what he's willing to do to get you. And he's going to win you over. There's a place where Jesus asks, who's going to love more? The person who has less sin that's forgiven or more sin that's forgiven? And everybody agrees, the one with more sin. Paul actually addresses this and he says, so then should we just keep on sinning so that grace might abound? He says, no, you shouldn't do that. But in your sin, you're going to see that God is gracious. Should you sin then? No, but in your sin, you're going to see that God is gracious. So don't go sin today because you, you heard me say go sin so you'll see God's grace. That's not what I'm saying to you. If you go to him, he's not going to deny you. No matter what. Go to his mercy and he's going to heal you. And you're going to actually want him because you've seen that he's been merciful to you. Okay, that's the second. The third is a Christian also. Trust God, you believed in him, but, you know, in the second, like, in the second person, you've run to God, but at the same time, you're running from him. There's a part of your life where you're running from him. But the third is that you're a Christian, but you're not getting an awareness of God's presence lately. And this has been my experience a lot lately. And here's what this feels like. You're getting in the Bible and you're reading and you're praying, but you're not getting a sense of God's presence. You're not getting a sense that he is real. And so, and by the way, if, if you're skeptical of this idea that you can have this awareness of God's presence, this experience of God, um, like you say in your mind, well, that's just some chemicals happening in your brain. It's giving you some type of euphoric feeling. Listen, there's a place in the last Harry Potter movie where Harry Potter dies. Sorry, this is giving away the story. I mean, I'm really ruining this story for you if you haven't watched it. So Harry Potter dies, and Dumbledore is also has died. And Harry Potter, Potter and Dumbledore are having this conversation, and Harry says to Dumbledore, is this real or is this just happening in my mind? And Dumbledore says, of course it's happening in your mind, but that doesn't mean that it's not real. When we experience God, it's when our mind and our heart are molded together where we get a real sense that God is real, that he's not just some concept or some idea, but God seems real to us. We can't deny it. And there's, there's, a, there's an awareness that makes you say, I believe this is true. And when God doesn't give us that, it's usually because he's showing us maybe this, that we're coming to him with wrong motives. Maybe we want something he can offer us more than we want him. And so he's trying to get us to search our heart to see what's going on inside so that we might then realize, gosh, I'm just using God. I need to go to him just for him. And so we go to him and he showers you with mercy and you say, ah, this is why I just want you. I don't care what you can give me. I just want you. And the second is that potentially God, you're not experiencing God's presence. The second might, reason might be is that God is trying to get you to stop longing for everything to be in this world and to long for the world that you are made for. There is another world that you are made for that God has made you for, and he wants you to love that world more than this. And he wants you to love him more than the things of this world. So 
He's doing this so that you'll long for him and his kingdom and his world that is to come. So that is God separating himself from us, giving us what we want so that we'll go to him and cry out for mercy like this younger brother did. Now, Paul, when he talks about this in Romans, at the end of it, he erupts in this praise because he's seeing the mercy of God. So what is this mercy of God that wins us back to him that's so fantastic, that's so great? It's in verses 26 or 27 and 28, and here's what Jesus says. My soul is troubled. He's in deep distress, but he says, but what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, no way, for this is the purpose I've come into the world. What he's saying is Jesus is saying is the reason, and Jesus is showing us his humanity here. He's saying the reason that I'm so distressed is because of the very purpose that I've come into the world. Jesus is distressed about why he is here, his mission here. What is his mission here? What is his purpose for coming into the world? Here's what it is. To be eternally, completely separated from the Father on the cross so that our separation is only temporary. On the cross, Jesus experiences an eternal separation from the Father somehow in three days so that ours might only be temporary. You see that? He's traded places with us. And, and, and by the way, we see some, Jesus say something very similar about why he's in distress in one of, the other, uh, one of the other gospels. And he's praying. And he becomes so distressed that he actually starts sweating blood, which is something that happens to people. If they're under enough stress, they'll start sweating blood. And I've got the name for you. It's right here. So if you're sweating blood, if I can find it here, Yeah, here it is. It's called hematidrosis. Hematidrosis or something like that. Okay, so that's happening to Jesus, okay? This is something that happens. It's happening to him. And here's what's going on. The Father and the Son love each other completely. Their love is so strong that they are bound as one. And Jesus' greatest nightmare happens on the cross where he is ripped apart from his Father. He's separated from him. So our separation only has to be temporary. And then here's what happens to us. Through our faith, we become bound to Christ. And he, as he lives through the separation, because we can't live through the separation. When something is completely, utterly separated from God, it dies, gone, done. But Jesus, through our faith, binds us to himself and when he lives through this separation, because he's glorious enough to live through it, he brings us to the Father. He brings us to everything that we want. He brings us to God. So in the story of the prodigal son, there's also an older brother in the story. And the older brother is really pissed that his younger brother has come home and has been restored back to the family. And the reason he is so mad is because now that means he's got to give some of his inheritance to his younger brother. Because if he's going to be completely restored, he's got to give some of his inheritance to his younger brother. His younger brother's wasted it away, and now it's stealing from him, and he's upset about it. But the story of you and Jesus is much different. 
Christ is your older brother. And he goes after you. The father opens up the gate and you go running and your older brother comes right behind and comes after you. And he finds you blind, absolutely blind to the father's love. And he comes into the mess of your life as you are eating the pig's food. And he comes to you and he says, come home. He says, come back to our father. And so what he does is he throws you up over his shoulders and he carries you back home, and you're kicking and screaming along the way. And he brings you to the Father. But the Father says, I can't get you back in. There's no inheritance left for you. It's gone. There's nothing. There's nothing to give you. But then something happens that you didn't expect. Your older brother says to the Father, I'm going to share all of mine with him or her. And he looks at you and he says, let's share it all. And then the father says, yeah, but look, he or she still doesn't love us. They still don't want us. See, we still don't want him. We're just still using him to get what we want. And the son says to the father, father, you know what we've got to do. And the father says, okay. And then Jesus looks at you, your older brother. He looks at you he says, I'm about, I'm about to go into my worst nightmare and I'm going to be separated from our father that I have loved forever. And I'm going to be separated from him so that you can be brought back, but so really so that you'll finally love us. What he's saying is that we're never going to love him until we're seeing what he's willing to do. The love that he showers upon us when we see that, then we'll say, okay, I, I'm in. I'm staying. I love you guys. Father, son, or brother, I'm yours. Let's go. And that's the Christian story. And we are always prone to run from God until we see this love. So how do you know if you've seen this love and mercy? Here's how you know. You see the cross and you say, wow, that is the love that God has for me. The cross is not dull to you. The cross becomes everything for you. I mean, that's why people, like when they first become Christians, they're like buying a cross all over the place because they're like, oh my gosh, God has done this for me. And so they, every time they see a cross, they're just buying it. And their whole house is filled with these crosses because it's reminding them of God's love for them. And you know what else? You see your sin, and you can stare it right in the face and not worry about a thing because you know you've got a God that's reached past your sin. His mercy has gone beyond your sin, and he's pulled you through your sin and brought you through pure, made you more like him, cleansed you completely of your sin. And then all of a sudden, you realize, when you look at the cross, you realize this is the hour that is most glorious about him. Nothing is more glorious about God than that cross, and you see it, and, and you see, that's why verse 23, 27, and 28 say, the hour where Jesus goes to the cross, that's the hour where he is most glorified because of what it means for me. I, we are, he is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him, the pleasures of looking at a God who has done this for you, and he becomes glorified. It 
saying, if you want to know the glory of God, look at the cross. And that's why Paul, when he says, I want, you, I want to read to you what he says, he goes through this in Romans 9 through 11, and at the end of it, here's what he says. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Listen, listen. He says, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I mean, he's erupting in praise because he's finally understood what's going on upon the cross and the mercy that God is offering. And when you see that he has done this for you, you can't help but glory in him. What does that mean, to glory in something? Well, think about it like this. So you're at the, there's a, some whitewater rapids, and you're right at the edge of the water. I mean, the, the water's right there, and there's water rapids going by, and you, you see them, and you say, okay, you realize, okay, this is your life. The whitewater rapids are your life, and it is passing you by. And there are things in your life that are coming and going. And the reason that they're coming and going is because they're not glorious enough to be unmoved by those waters. To be more glorious than something is to be unmoved by something. Glory means weightiness. And so if things in your life are just passing by, it's because they're not glorious enough. But you notice that right in the middle of those water rapids is this big rock. And that rock remains unmoved moved by the waters of life and death, and you realize Christ is that rock. And he is being unmoved by the heavy waters. To glory in him means to keep your eyes fixed upon him, that rock. See, you can't glory in anything else because things just come and go in your life. They're not glorious enough to remain in your vision because the waters of life and death sweep them past you. He is constant, and so to glory in him means that you make him now the most important thing in your life because he's really the only thing that can remain in your vision. Now, come on, listen, 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 listen. Everything else is carried away by the waters. Your friends come and go. Your jobs will come and go. Loved ones will come and go because they're carried away by death. But he remains constant. And listen to this. If you stack the things you love in your life upon the rock, you can enjoy them. They don't pass you by. If you stack your marriage upon the rock who is Christ, your marriage remains unmoved friends, your family, everything, whatever you want, stack it upon, and you can actually enjoy those things because they are on the rock, the foundation of Christ. And if you try to find your happiness in anything other than that rock, it just passes right along, and it come and goes. If you base your happiness off of things that come and go in life, your happiness is always in jeopardy. But if you base your happiness, you find your pleasures, your hedonism, your Christian hedonism on that rock, it remains unmoved because he is the only one that is glorious enough to remain. And that's what it means to glory in him. He's the most important thing in your life. And the only way you realize he's the most important thing in your life is if you see the mercy that's being offered by the cross. In the Old Testament, 
many times the waters represent the wrath of God. And what the Christian comes to realize is that they were drowning in the waters of wrath. And what their older brother did was come and pick them up out of those waters, place them on the shore, and he was hit with that wrath in your place. And he is the only one that is glorious enough to live through it. And then through your faith, you are bound to him. He lives through it. You stay up upon the rock as he is hit by all of the wrath that the Father has for our rebellion, for our sin, for our running from him. And all that we get is the love and the joy that the Father has for the Son is now given to us. The Father loves you beyond your wildest dreams because you are sitting upon that rock who is Christ. And that's all you get is the love of God over and over and over again. You will fix your eyes upon the cross. You will see the love and the mercy and the glory of God who scooped you up, put you upon the shore. Let's pray. God, help us to see your mercy, your glory. Let us look upon the cross with wonder. Let us not think it's something that's foolish. Let us not think it's something that is offensive, but let us think that's something that's beautiful. Because you wanted to win us over, and you knew that the only thing that would do it was showering us with a mercy that we didn't deserve, but you give it freely. You pour that mercy upon us. So help us to believe this is true for us. And help us to sing like people who are standing upon that rock, knowing that the waters of wrath are hitting you, Jesus, not us. And let us be thankful for that. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.